0: Welcome to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted we're spending this time here today. We have a very inspirational show coming right up. Our special guest today is Patricia O'Connell Pearson, and she's here to talk to us about her new book, Fly Girls, the daring American women pilots who helped win World War II. Patricia is a former history teacher with a master's degree in education from George Mason University. She has contributed to many articles and magazines, including those in the Washington Post. She's always enthusiastic about sharing stories about history and has earned her MFA in writing for young people from Lesley University and now writes both historical fiction and nonfiction. So let's welcome to the show, Patricia.
1: Thanks very much for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you here, and what a fabulous
2: book- regardless what age you know well thank you <laughs> it, it, well it was a delight to write it well, I can imagine i mean it's so well researched and and so I have to ask, you know what was the inspiration behind this book?
1: Well, it goes back a long way in a sense. I have always loved history uh, since I had a terrific teacher junior year of high school. And so I majored in history in college and sort of fell into teaching by accident but ended up loving it for decades. And what you find out a lot when you're teaching, you learn so much from the students uh, about all kinds of things, including teaching. But what one of the things I learned was that I was drawn in history. I'd never analyzed what it was I liked about history. and I realized one of the things I liked most was stories that inspire uh, stories about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And they make me feel like I can do better, I should do better, that I can be better, and that that all of us can can step up and do extraordinary things. so I first heard about the Women Air Force Service Pilots, which is uh, the the name of the group, called WASP. And I only heard about them about three years ago. And, of course, they struck me right away as that kind of a story of ordinary people doing something extraordinary. And... I at first was a little embarrassed, chagrined that I had never heard of them, even though I taught American history for many years. They did not appear in textbooks. They did not appear in the other reading that I had done, big, huge tomes on World War II, and I had never heard of them. And so that struck me as a bit odd. And I began looking into them and realized what a great story they are. And they were right up my alley in terms of people i wanted to be like
2: Hmm. well when you were doing your research for you know just as your it sounds like it was kind of a passion kind of that evolved into a book um when you were doing your research for that were there certain women that stood out because i i think a lot of young girls and and younger people don't understand like um how women's rights have evolved over time. And, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that we were even able to vote.
1: That's right. And, uh, these women, as I came across them and still do, I mean, I still, uh, will come across something where there's, um, unfortunately an obituary. We're losing these people very rapidly, of course. And, Uh, And so you read something in a local newspaper about one of these women, and they'll have a picture of her in her more recent years, in her 90s. And the pictures just grabbed me because you can see it in the pictures of them in the 1940s, and you can see it in the pictures of them in their 80s and 90s, that they have a spark, that these are people you'd want them on your side if you ever needed help. They um, are vibrant, vibrant women. And so a number of them stick out for a variety of different reasons, some for their tremendous skill as pilots and some uh, for their tremendous determination. They didn't come into this easily um, and they were determined to do it, uh, ran into all kinds of difficulties that we can talk about as we go along but Mm -hmm. and then afterwards they mostly married and had families but many of them also had careers which was unusual for that generation and so they they did continue to stand out some of them continued to set records in aviation some of them uh, became professors artists they ran their own businesses. They did all kinds of things. And eventually then they fought for recognition as WASP, and they did that just as well. well so they, they, there were just yeah. a, a slew of them. The one who inspired mm-hmm. me initially was a woman in my own local area, and I live just outside Washington, D.C. And I saw in our local news, and I don't know if it ever was in the national news, That a woman had died in Silver Spring, Maryland, and she had been a wasp. She was 95 years old when she died in 2015. And she had left a note for her children that she wanted to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery, the most prestigious military cemetery in the country. Her children applied, and the cemetery said no, because she was not technically military. Wow. And so other women who had been wasped had been buried at other military cemeteries in other parts of the country because they had eventually gotten militarization for purposes of veterans' benefits. But Arlington National Cemetery is not run by the Bureau of Veterans Affairs. It's run by the Army. And they interpreted the law that they couldn't do it. Well, her children didn't take no for an answer, and they went to Congress, and they got petitions and so forth. And in 2016, Congress passed a law, and Barack Obama signed it, um, allowing these women to be buried at Arlington. And so this woman um, just intrigued me when I saw her in the local newspaper and on our local news. And that's really the first time I'd heard of them, and that's how I got into it, was through her. Her name was Elaine Harmon. And there's a wonderful picture of her at the age of 86 in the cockpit of the kind of plane she flew during the war, just grinning from ear to ear, just (laughs) obviously embracing life. Yeah, just love it. And, you know, it's so
2: interesting. You know, these women were not only pioneers but rebels in many ways because, you know, they wore pants. They were doing – they were actually doing, like, jobs. It was totally different – than what the norm was doing.
1: It was. And, of course, a lot of women found themselves doing things they never suspected they would do during the war. Mm -hmm. Uh, The home front, one of the things I like um, here in Washington, the World War II memorial on the National Mall, its mission is not just to honor the military, and when you go there you see a lot of military Emblems and so forth But you also see the civilians You see people working in factories And farming and so forth That the, the memorial honors Americans During World War II mm-hmm. That everyone stepped up And so there were a lot of women Who were building the planes That these our wasps ended up flying um, And they did do Traditionally non-feminine jobs But you're right these women uh, they were not generally in areas where a lot of people were doing that kind of thing they were at military bases and um, they did run into all kinds of things and they laughed a lot about it they found uh, most of them it was frustrating on occasion to be thrown out of a restaurant because you were wearing pants which happened Uh, they were in uniform, and the uniform was pants because you don't really pilot all that well in a skirt. And um, so there were frustrations, it, you know, sort of making life more complicated than it needed to be. But most of them took it with good humor and, and talked about it later, as, as, you know, laughing as they did so. Yeah,
2: you have to have a certain sense of humor. Because you know you're going up so many obst, you know, against so many obstacles. Oh, yeah. Just mm-hmm. to fly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Which seems somewhat ridiculous, but, I mean, they're really pioneers for women and and uh, kind of on the forefront of women's rights in, in many ways, you know, because they kind of pulled some of these restrictions, kind of pulled them back. So, you know, we have a lot. They
1: did. Of them. Yeah. They were, um, a lot of them, now some of them were quite young and single and came to do this others were a little bit older Um, so some of them were in their 30s when the war started and they were experienced pilots and uh, some of them many of them as a matter of fact were married some had children and so they were leaving the children behind to go do this and we're very used to men doing that in the military, having to be deployed. We're not used to women doing that. One of them, in fact, the very first woman to sign up for this program was a woman named Betty Gillies, and she was a tremendously experienced pilot. She and her, uh, her husband worked for Grumman uh, airline, Air uh, Manufacturer, mm-hmm. and she flew for them as well. He was an executive with them. And so she had flown some pretty big planes and so forth, and they had two little boys, and they had lost a daughter to leukemia just right before Pearl Harbor. And so she hesitated as to whether to do this or not, Um, but her husband was not going to be going off to war because he was running one of the places that was building planes. And so he was one of those essential personnel, and he would not be leaving. So he would have, he was there for the children, and I think her mother um, came and stayed at the house. And so she did. Uh, he, she asked him what he thought, and he said, go, do it. And so she did, and um, there were a number of them like that. And so that was a boundary breaker, to be the working mom, to be the working wife. Uh, for middle-class people was a boundary Breaker. And then they went on, of course, to fly not just the smaller trainer planes and so forth, but they went on to fly everything—78 um, different kinds of planes before they were done. And uh, they they flew the B-29 bomber, the Super Fortress, which was the biggest plane in existence at the time. And so they did all of that as as military higher ups were saying they can't do that. Even once they had allowed them to be flying, they really didn't think they could fly the great huge planes because those were not the way planes are today. They did not have power seats. They did not have power (laughs) steering, so to speak. It took a lot of muscle, a lot of physical strength to fly those planes. And so some of these women, Betty Gillies again, was just under five foot two. And she laughed later and said it was a good thing she'd applied so early because once they really got the rules and regulations set up, she wouldn't have qualified. She would have been too short. She weighed less than 110 pounds. And so the military brass couldn't believe she'd be able to fly these really large planes. And she was one of the first two women to fly the B-17 bomber and um, she figured out how to do it they the the small women would bring extra parachutes to sit on Mm -hmm. and put behind them because the seats didn't move forward Uh, she had wood blocks made to go over the rudder pedals so that she could reach them
2: oh wow and
1: still be able to see essentially over the what we would call the dashboard in the cockpit to be able to see out of the plane and they just learned, uh, they, they did a lot of physical fitness training to gain strength, but they also learned uh, finesse, that you could fly these planes um, by using slightly different positioning and so forth to give your muscles a little extra boost um, that men didn't necessarily have to do. Well, and it's, it's just so interesting,
2: you know, all the accommodations that women had to make, in order just to be able to fly. And, and during that time, for our younger listeners, you know, there was a shortage of pilots, and that's kind of why they were looking at women when they probably would not
1: have otherwise. That's right, and actually the military didn't think of it. When the war started in 1939, this country was fairly isolationist, both in Congress and in the public. And the war had started in Europe, but they hoped to avoid it, oceans protecting us and so on. And Franklin Roosevelt, president at the time, understood that that was very unlikely, that this country would be involved. And so he began to work with Congress to uh, start a draft. that was our first peacetime draft in our history to pull men into the military, begin to build the military. Our, mil- our army at the time was smaller than Portugal's. We did not have a big military. And he also began to get funding to build um, planes, tanks, ships, etc. He wanted 10,000 planes. Uh, They agreed to 6,000 and began to manufacture them. And about the same time, uh, just very shortly, maybe two weeks after the war started, uh, uh, Jacqueline Cochran, who was a very famous aviator at the time, and in fact she still holds the record for more um, record setting of altitude, speed, and distance than any other pilot, man or woman. And she wrote a letter to the military suggesting that women could fly non-combat kinds of missions if needed. She did get got nowhere with it. Mm -hmm. Not long after, a woman named Nancy Love, also a very experienced flyer, wrote a letter suggesting that women could fly ferrying jobs, which ferrying is flying the plane from the factory to the base or from one base to another as it's needed, that kind of thing. And she got nowhere either. And part of the reason was the military maintained that They didn't need more pilots right then. They needed more planes, which take quite a while to build. Well, once we got involved in the war in 1941 in December, things began to change because those first two years of the war, 1942 and into 1943, were devastating. The Allies were losing the war. Um, Country after country in Europe had been taken over. Britain was the only country left to oppose Hitler at that point, that could actively oppose Hitler. Um, And once we're in the war, we're fighting a two front war. We lost island after island in the Pacific and we're losing planes and very sadly pilots, just constantly. And so uh, now there really was a shortage of pilots. And so the military revisited Uh, the general who was running what was at the time was called the Army Air Corps. The Air Force was not an independent branch of the military until after the war. Uh, His name was Hap Arnold, and he was not opposed to women flying. He knew there were very good women pilots out there, but he was not convinced they could fly the big planes and he knew a lot about flying. He was a tremendous aviator himself. He had learned to fly in 1911, which is just eight years after the airplane was invented. And his instructors were Orville and Wilbur Wright. And he had flown not in World War I, but he had studied that dramatically and was a huge proponent of an Air Force. And so he suggested to Jacqueline Cochran Did she go to England, where there was already a program like this going on? And she could observe that and perhaps encourage American pilots, women pilots, to join her. And she did. And about 25 American women went to England and flew uh, ferrying flights. And uh, one of the things these women did there was that during the Blitz, when uh, Germany was bombing England, night after night after night in the summer of uh, 1940, um, these women would go running out on the tarmac to get the planes up so they wouldn't be bombed, but they weren't armed. So then you just flew around trying to stay above the bombing until it was over and come back down. Oh, my. So obvious, yeah, (laughs) a risky proposition at best. So the people doing it in England were under a lot more danger than anybody doing it here because we were not being bombed. At any rate, um, so Cochrane went to England to do that, and in September of '42, as things are not going well for the Allies, uh, Nancy Love got permission to go ahead and contact women she had done research on in order to begin a ferrying program. And her program was called the Women. Um, oh, now I'm going to go blank on them. The Women <laughs> uh, Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron. Yeah. The WAFs. And she sent telegrams to 83 women. She had done her homework. She had gone through. Of course, this is long before computers or databases. She had gone through flight records. You know, pilots keep very careful logs of all their flight time. And she had gone through that kind of thing, and she was a member of a club called the 99s that started uh, in the 20s, and Amelia Earhart was its first president. And they were, it was a women's pilots club, and there were 99 members originally. It still exists today. There are thousands of members internationally today. And so Nancy Love went through those records, and she knew the day she got the permission to do it, she could send those telegrams. She knew exactly who she was looking for. Mm -hmm. She wanted women who had at least 500 hours of flight time. Now, men going into training to do military flying who were already pilots needed 300 hours, but she wanted 500. And, in fact, the 28 women who eventually – I shouldn't say eventually because it was pretty quick – but who did join her – at Newcastle, Delaware, had an average of 1,200 hours of flight time. They had done all kinds of flying. Many of them were flight instructors because the uh, government had started in the late 30s a program called the Civilian Pilot Training Program. Seeing what was going on in Europe, they thought if they offered courses in flying and you could get a pilot's license, Um, then they would have this civilian basket of people to call on when the time came, and they would need a lot less training. And so they did it through colleges and universities where you could take the ground courses as part of your curriculum, and then it would be near an airfield where you could do the actual flying. And women were allowed in that program. Ten percent of each class could be female until – Pearl Harbor, and then they closed it to women and did all men. And so a lot of these women had gotten their licenses through that program and then went on to teach. One of them was a barnstormer. Uh, One of them, Barbara Poole, had been the youngest commercial pilot in the country when she was 17. And she had taught in that program, and her claim to fame in that program was that every student she taught passed their licensing exam on the first try and so these were tremendous pilots and they could then um, love had designed a four-week program 12 hours a day to get them up to speed on flying military planes but also the military protocols that they would need to know um in terms of forms that had to be filled out and communication with the towers at military bases and all that, that sort of thing that they would need to know. And so they were up and flying very quickly. In the meantime, Jacqueline Cochran comes back to the United States and she gets permission to start a much bigger program. I've always say that her ideas were always bigger than everyone else's. She was a, a, a tour de force kind of person. Yeah. And, She has all these records, and, of course, it was not polite for women to toot their own horns in those days, and she didn't hesitate to point out that she was the best pilot in the country probably. And, um, of course, when a man does that, it's confidence. When a woman does it, it's arrogance. But Mm -hmm. um, she started this program in Texas, and it was the Women's Flying uh, Training Detachment. And those two programs would be merged in the summer of 1942 and become the WASP, the Women Air Force Service Pilots, all of which are mouthful, mouthful, Mm-hmm. And so she started a program. Again, the women coming into her program had to already have a license. Now, men going in and applying to be pilots did not have to have a license as time went on. These women did, but she was accepting women, had a lot less experience than the people in Delaware. And it was a longer training program. It went for months rather than weeks. And she wanted them to do more than ferrying planes from one base to another or factory to base. She wanted them to do all sorts of non-combat flying. So they ended up doing things like target towing. And if you've ever been at a beach and you see the little planes that go along the beach with the banner behind them advertising the crab shack or whatever, it was very similar to that. These were flying small planes, and off the back of the plane, you would be towing this fabric target. And the people on the ground, the men on the ground, were training in anti aircraft um, defense. And so their job was to shoot at that target. And when you landed, they were supposed to count the bullet holes in that target. And they could identify them. They had dye so that one person's bullets were going to make a red hole and somebody else would make a blue hole, that sort of thing. But what these women found is they're piloting these these little planes. And there were men, civilian men, doing the same kinds of jobs. Uh, but they would pilot these planes and realize that the guys on the ground either didn't understand the instruction or weren't very good yet because they were hitting the plane. And they'd land and they'd have as many holes in the plane as they did in the target. Oh, my
2: goodness.
1: Some of those planes were actually shot down. No one was killed, but some of them actually were shot down by the fellows on the ground who who uh, either didn't get it or just instinctively were shooting at the plane, you know, just mm-hmm. instinct took over. So at any rate, they, that was one job that they did. They also did work as test pilots, which is an extremely dangerous job. Because what okay. they were doing is taking planes that had been in for maintenance and taking them up to see if they'd really been fixed. And if they hadn't, they could really end up in a lot of trouble. One woman had a, a situation where she had become a test pilot, excuse me, and she um, went up she had a co-pilot with her who had been a combat pilot. And they did, if you reached 25 missions as a combat pilot, you were finished. You came home and did other things because the the stress of that was just phenomenal. And so he came home and he went up with her. And as they're flying this plane that supposedly had been repaired, it went into a spin and it wouldn't come out. Now, they do a spin on purpose to test planes to make sure everything's Mm -hmm. working right. But in this case, it wouldn't stop spinning. And they're spiraling toward the ground. And she took over the controls, and eventually she managed to get it out in the nick of time. And they landed the plane, and he didn't even talk. He got out of the plane. He (laughs) walked into the commander and said, I need a different job. I'm not doing this. Can't do it. (laughs) And she continued doing the test pilot. Mm -hmm. So they did that, and um, they flew gliders. As well, they towed gliders, I should say. So they were using gliders could get into uh, behind enemy lines in Europe because they're quiet. They don't make any noise. So you could send supplies. Um, They were big enough to even send things like Jeeps and so on behind enemy lines without being heard. And they had a pilot, but you had to get up in the air, and then the pilot could guide them in. And so you used a great big plane to haul these things up in the air, and it put a lot of strain on the plane. And these were the big cargo planes that are very cumbersome when they take off. It seems like you just need a runway that goes forever before the thing can get off the ground because they're so huge and so heavy. And when you're towing an extra plane behind you, you can imagine that the pull on that is just tremendous. And so they, they learned how to do that and get those gliders up and off, and you release them and off they go. They also flew drones, which most of us think are brand new. But drones have been around since World War I. And, uh, but they weren't like the ones today. You couldn't fly them from huge thousands of miles away. You had to be very close in another plane to fly the drone. And so they did that as well. And one of the jobs they had was um, you had to have a pilot in the drone as a backup. Now, in the real situation, there would be no pilot in the drone. But in this case, the military couldn't afford to have the drone crash while the person in the plane who was learning how to fly it was learning. So they would have a backup pilot who could take over in an emergency and so that, you, you were sitting this tiny little thing. It wasn't designed for a person to be in. It was teeny. And so um, two of the, the women did that. Um, there were not very many people trained at all to do that. So they did a, a number of jobs, and they also taught um, flying lessons to the men, some of whom were fine with that and some of whom seemed to resent it. One woman oh, yeah. said she always asked on the first day if anybody didn't want to be in her class, just let her know, and she'd find them another instructor. And they, that kind of always smoothed it over, and they never said that they wanted to move to another class.
2: Yeah, it you kind of just kind of nip it in the bud right there and, and move forward because if, if you're a good pilot, you're a good pilot, you know?
1: Exactly. And most of them, as much as they did run into a lot of discrimination, but most of them later said that uh, – most of the pilots that they worked with, and particularly the combat pilots who were back and forth and knew them, had no problem with it at all. They saw the skill, and they, they were all equals. And it seemed to be very dependent on where you were located. It came from the top down. So in Long Beach, California, there were 80-some WASP station. there. It was huge. And they flew every kind of plane, big, small, all different kinds of things. They were accepted as equals. They never had a problem. None of them saw any problems there. And at uh, Camp Davis, North Carolina, there were nonstop problems. And it seemed that the highest military officers there were opposed to the idea of the women doing this, and it's filtered down so that a whole group of mechanics, when they found out that 20-some women would be stationed there, asked for transfers. They didn't want to work for women. Eventually they got over that, um, recognized the skill, and actually recognized that they needed to protect these women because the planes at Camp Davis were abysmal. New tires new parts, all went to Europe for the planes that were actually in combat. And so on the bases where they're doing training, they were real rattle traps. And so the women learned to hang out with the mechanics and find out as much as they could about the planes they were going to take up. Um, But they also had incidents there which were never proven, but all the evidence pointed at sabotage of some Mm -hmm. of these planes that the women were flying. Uh, In one case, um, Jacqueline Cochran found sugar in the gas tank, which is there's no way for it to get there accidentally. Yeah, that's a big indicator right there. (laughs) Yes, and, and, and some women died as a result of either sabotage or just terrible maintenance, which is not necessarily the fault of the maintenance workers. They just didn't have the spare parts that they were supposed to have. They had a form they were supposed to fill out uh, when there was a problem with a plane. You'd fill out this form saying, you know, whatever it was didn't work and turn it in. And the mechanics were honest and said, there's no point in filling it out because we don't have any spare parts. So they couldn't fix stuff. And one woman did die. Uh, the plane was never really determined what had gone wrong with the plane mechanically. She had, she was still uh, in training, and there was a pilot behind her, in the seat behind her. And he, when the plane crashed, he was able to get out. Um, he told her to eject. She didn't. He couldn't figure out why. He's screaming at her to eject. Uh, eject. He did. She didn't. Um, and the plane caught fire on the ground, and she died. And it turned out later that that plane had been turned in with the form that the hatch would not open from the inside of the pilot's um, seat oh wow she couldn't get out yeah she was trapped in that plane when it crashed and, and the whole all the people on the base witnessed this and it was really horrific
2: yeah it it, it seems like at some point there was a, a turning point for all this as well you know that there's a little bit more acceptance and um, even though I know later on they did go and disband the, the group of women.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and most of the women felt that once they proved that they could, in fact, fly these planes, then there was acceptance. And they referred to their brother pilots and um, sometimes got notes when they delivered a plane to a base and they knew it was going from there straight to combat overseas. Um, they would sometimes leave a note in the pilot's seat, you know, wishing them the best and that sort of thing and occasionally got notes back from the pilots thanking them for having tested the plane well and that that kind of thing and so um there was an affection there and 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 a respect that did grow over time and um in some places more than others as i say but overall in the public once they figured out what was going on, uh, this was all considered an experimental program, so it was kind of secretive, and the women weren't supposed to give interviews and that kind of thing, but the public uh, saw these women in train stations, bus stations, and so on when they were moving from one place to another, sometimes mistook them for Girl Scouts, but um, (laughs) uh, generally, once they found out what what they were doing, they, they accepted them very well, and You know, somebody might stand up so one of these women could lie down on a bench in a train station because they were exhausted. They flew unbelievably long hours. Um, Pilots would not be doing that today, certainly not commercial pilots, Uh, but they did. They would fly these cross-country things. Sometimes the the tiny planes didn't have um, radios sometimes, some of the smaller ones. Uh, They didn't have radar. So you were on your own when uh, the weather was bad. You had to just kind of um, find your way through the clouds and a place to land and that kind of thing. And so they had a mix of not quite knowing what to expect when they got to a base that they hadn't been to before as to how welcomed they would be. Overall, there was respect for them. So it did turn in that direction for a while and then seemed to turn back. Um, the other way. Yeah, unfortunately. It it really
2: sounds like they had to be so resourceful when it came to every new location they're at and plane that they're dealing with just to be able to um, do the work that they're they're there to do.
1: They were resourceful. They were not allowed early on. I think it changed toward the end. But the military was so worried that these women were just there to find husbands And so that they would actually go through all this to find a husband. (laughs) Um, And they would, um, they had rules. uh, Most of the time when a a ferrying pilot dropped a plane off at a base, he would get a ride back in some military plane that was going to the base he needed to go to, and you would just hitch a ride. The women weren't allowed to do that because uh, the military didn't want a woman pilot in the cockpit with a male pilot unless there was a chaperone involved. And so they had to find their own way back. You know, they'd have to leave the base, go into town, find a bus station, get back in the other direction. And so it was much slower than if they'd been able to just hop on another plane, but they weren't allowed to. And they, um, they were resourceful in figuring out how to fly the planes. It was common for ferrying pilots because they flew so many different kinds of planes, both the men and the women to keep the instructor's manual in their lap so that as they're at cruising altitude, they could read the landing instructions and remind themselves of how to land that particular plane. And it seemed that the women paid more attention to the instruction manuals than the men on average, and so uh, eventually several commanders realized this, and they used the women as examples when men didn't want to fly particular planes. This was true of the B-26 and the B-29. They both came off the assembly line. Of course, these things are being produced as fast as possible with not nearly as much preliminary testing as people would have liked. And so both of those planes had reputations for accidents and fires. And Paul Tibbetts, who was the man who eventually flew the Enola Gay that dropped the first atomic bomb, uh, was flying the B-29, and he loved it. He thought it was a wonderful plane, and they needed it because it could fly so far without landing. But the men generally didn't want, a lot of pilots didn't want to fly it because of its reputation for catching fire. And Mm -hmm. so there was a woman. uh, He had two women. Uh, from a nearby base who volunteered to fly the plane. And he taught them how to fly it. It took him three or four days, and they were doing it very, very well. And then his idea was that they would go and do sort of an air show, and then when they landed and all the guys on the ground are supposed to be flying this plane and not wanting to, and they do this, you know, remarkable kind of air show and, and land. And when they get out, oh, my goodness, it's two women pilots and then the men were willing to fly it. <laughs> and, and Tibbetts even said, he, he said he wanted it to show that it was so easy even a girl could do it. And that way, the men, their egos wouldn't let them say, I'm afraid to fly that plane. Yeah. And so that happened with, um, with several different um, situations where the women were asked to do that. Yeah, They're
2: saying, well, if the women can do it, come on, you can too.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. They were ashamed to be embarrassed, to to be afraid to to fly it if the girls could do it. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's called Fly Girls, and um, there was some hesitation about that title. I never refer to them as girls in the book, they were women. And um, but at the time in the 1940s that was not pejorative it was not demeaning. A lot of the male pilots um, were referred to as flyboys. So it was it was fly girls and fly boys. And uh, of course the fly boys were considered the absolute cream of the crop of the military. Was to be a fighter pilot that was anybody's dream uh, job was that was the job. And, you know, I think it it kind of still is. And so that was one of the problems women had was that it was such a manly, manly man's job that how could they now acknowledge that these women were doing it? So as time went on, um, things changed. The war changed, which is one reason that, that the attitudes toward the women went from hesitant to very accepting and then hostile toward the end, unfortunately. Yeah. Well,
2: and, you know, so we talked about, you know, the women that were part of this. You know, I think it's important also to talk about the African-American women that were able to fly because that, I mean, they had to jump so many more hurdles to be able to do that, and you so brilliantly have this listed in your book. I love it.
1: Well, at the time, the military, the entire U.S. military was, segregated. So there were men, uh, African-American men, in the military. They uh, had different units completely. They trained separately. And they did different jobs. And most of those jobs were um, support jobs. There were a lot of uh, black cooks in the Navy, for example. But they weren't doing the actual combat work, for the most part. And Uh, So when Jacqueline Cochran was interviewing all these women, she did have uh, some very well-qualified African-American women apply. And she said no. She rejected them. Now, she said that uh, she had no problem whatsoever with anybody's race. If they were a good pilot, they were a good pilot. But – she was concerned that if she accepted black women into the program, as she described it, it might be the straw that broke the camel's back of the program's success. Because she and Nancy Love, with her program, were already pushing the envelope to have these women flying military planes at all. They wanted them to be militarized as the wax and waves in the Army and Navy were, and that's what did not happen in the end. But they were pushing for that, so they're pushing in a lot of directions already. And she thought if she pushes the race issue when the military is, in fact, segregated and there were no African-American military pilots at the time, this is before the Tuskegee Airmen were training, um, that it would destroy the program entirely. And so they, they were not allowed to do it. But there were very well-qualified African-American women um, who could have done it had they been allowed to, and sadly they were not. Um, uh, Bessie Coleman, I mentioned in the book, uh, who was the most famous of the, uh, the first African-American woman to get a pilot's license, Uh, She couldn't train in the United States, and she's a little earlier than this. She got a license in 1921 in France, and she wanted to open a flight school for blacks so that other women could get their licenses. Uh, She unfortunately died in a plane crash um, before she was able to do that. Uh, But 1938, a woman named Willa Brown was the first black woman to earn a pilot's license in the United States. And so several others followed uh, but in 1942, when this program is starting, they could not break through that barrier to get into this program. So it was a very um, uh, white group. There were two Chinese-American women in the group uh, and one Native American woman. But other than that, everybody in the group. There were 1,102 mm-hmm. wasps, and so all but those three <laughs> were um were white women. There was diversity. It sounds like that makes them all the same, but they were quite diverse in terms of their own backgrounds. Many who initially, particularly in the Delaware program, where they had so much flight time, so much experience going in, were pretty wealthy women, some of them very wealthy. One had, um, uh, her family had oil wells, and another one was the uh, heir to the Woolworths Five and Dime fortune and they could afford to go out and buy their own planes let alone their own lessons and so on other women like Nancy Love herself were upper middle class we would probably say today and they they could afford an expensive hobby and that's how they got started but others um, there was a woman who came from a ranch family and it was the most practical way to be able to survey the entire ranch at thousands of acres. They were not wealthy people, um, but it was her transportation around the ranch. And another who had uh, grew up very poor in Nebraska and got her pilot's license. And those kinds of people would go to the nearby airstrip and offer to wash the airplanes or, you know, or work at the desk or whatever they could do to get lessons for free. So they would exchange work for getting lessons and then eventually for flight time. So they scrambled. Those, those women were resourceful, too, in figuring out how they could do something they couldn't afford to do. Yeah, because flying um, is an expensive hobby. It is. In, it is or a job
2: hobby. in some cases. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. there was one woman uh, who went to the, the Texas training program who was very wealthy, and she had show dogs. She had these Ascan hounds that she took around to shows, and she had gotten her pilot's license so that she could fly the dogs to dog shows around the country. And when she arrived in Texas, at, um, in the middle of nowhere, in Sweetwater, Texas, a very small place at the time, and uh, she had her dogs with her <laughs> and stayed in the a good hotel nearby. <laughs> but once they got there and proved that they could um, not just fly, but do the physical training and the long hours and all the rest of it, Um, uh, the dirt, the living in barracks, eventually when they're out in the middle of nowhere and that kind of thing, then everybody was equal. They, you know, what your background was, how educated you were and so on did not matter. Yeah, it was all about the flying. It was all about the flying. These women loved the flying and for all the trouble they had and the danger, 38 died. in in the course of their duty. Um, But with all of that, the vast majority look back on it it as the best time of their lives. They felt um, that they loved flying and and that being able to use your skills and something you love to do to serve your country in a time of just tremendous need uh, was just like a dream come true that you could turn this thing you love doing into something so purposeful. And so they were, uh, as as one woman said, when somebody asked her long after, you know, 40 years after the event, would you go through this again? Would you do this again? She said, you bet your sweet life I would. (laughs) And I think a lot of them in their 80s would have done it right that minute too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it really is a passion of theirs. Well, and I've got to ask. So you have a, um, a photo of a lady on the front cover of your book in a plane.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you know yes. who that lady is? I do know. She's not mentioned in the book. Her name is Libby Gardner, and she mm-hmm. was a wasp. Um, and that particular picture was taken at an Air Force base in Texas, uh, she was, and that's a B-26. And she's an wow. outfit of the B-26, which was a, a medium, called a medium-weight bomber. Mm-hmm. And uh, she died in 1975. But it, I think it works well to have somebody I don't talk about on the cover because in the end, the book isn't about any one individual. It's about a 1,000 women, 1,100 women. And each of them, as you go through the uh, – there are a lot of oral interviews with these women who are no longer with us, and some of them wrote – autobiographies or at least did interviews in newspapers and magazines and so on. And everyone you read, you think, Oh, I wish I'd included that one. Oh, I wish I'd known about this. You know, uh, the mm-hmm. stories just go on. There are a thousand stories out of these women. And so I think uh, to have somebody just who she's representing all of them there. But I will say that that picture, um, they didn't always look like that when they were flying. <laughs> <laughs> she's, um, you know, she's wearing makeup and, and um, so forth. And one of the problems the women had toward the end was that when the press covered them, and Life magazine, which, of course, was read by millions of Americans every week, and for those who aren't familiar with it, it was a big magazine, and it was known for its photography, And they would do these stories of American life. And they did uh, two or three different uh, primary articles on the WASP over the course of time. And they talked about them very accurately, the kind of training they did, the kind of flying they were doing, the long hours. All of that was quite accurate. And they had pictures of them in their winter gear, hauling uh, their equipment, and that kind of thing. All of that was well done. But even that magazine, which was doing a good job of describing the women, tended to use adjectives like pretty, comely, shapely. Oh. (laughs) Um, Oh, It was just embedded. I, I would suspect that the people writing those articles didn't even know they were doing it. I don't think they thought of themselves as – Yeah. Uh, they certainly did not think of themselves as demeaning the women. I'm sure of it. But it comes across – we recognize it today. It jumps out at us today. And we're still doing it. We're still doing it. There was a an article in an, our newspaper, The Washington Post, last week about Nancy Pelosi's high heels. mm and I think, you know, it, it was it was not um, – it was talking about the power of high heels with women, which does linger. But interestingly, and I'm thinking, you know, this is 2018, and we're talking about high heels on a congresswoman. Maybe we should be talking about the bill she's talking about or the <laughs> – you know, yeah, that kind of thing. And so it hasn't gone away. That does not go away. And I think so. Libby Gardner is a stunning woman, beautiful woman, great dimples. And um, so that was a carefully done photograph. And those are the those are the women who appeared most often in the magazines where they're using pictures. It was the very attractive women. And a lot of them were attractive, Um it didn't make them better or worse pilots than those who were less attractive. But that, that was there, and it was a piece, eventually, of their demise because people looked at them as being glamour girls. Um, mm. And so they, um, uh, over time, by 1944, the need for pilots has diminished uh, fortunately, by then, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, was tremendously weakened between the U.S. Air Force, and it was called the Air Force by then. It was no it was still part of the Army. But the U.S. Air mm-hmm. Force and the British Royal Air Force had weakened the Luftwaffe tremendously. And so we're not losing as many pilots and not losing as many planes. And so the need for pilots was lessening and the need for um, planes was lessening, which means that there are fewer ferrying needs. There are not so many coming off the assembly lines any longer. And so the men who had been doing these jobs, the civilian pilots who had been doing the same jobs as the women, are now eligible to be drafted. And what the military needs at this point isn't more pilots. It's infantry because they're preparing for the invasions. My goodness, you are absolutely just fabulous and fascinating. And I wish
2: we had more time <laughs> <laughs> because I love listening to you talk about this period of time because it is so rich. There's so much that's going on. You know, where can our listeners pick up a copy of your book, Fly Girls?
1: Well, it is on Amazon. I'm told they had it on sale this week when it, it just came out on February 6th and uh, it's at Barnes & Noble and a variety of independent bookstores. So exciting. it's out there. Yeah. yeah, and everyone can pick up their and own copy and, and
2: uh, really dive into it. Yeah, I yes, and it's it not eventually. a long book.
1: It's for ages 10 and up, and so it's, um, there's some explanation, background to the war itself and that kind of thing, uh, the time period and so forth for kids who are not familiar with that yet or adults who have forgotten Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: just gives you some, some background information. Well, it's beautifully written. I loved it. Thank you. And, yeah, I just really enjoyed Fly Girl, so everyone wants to go out and pick up their own copy of Fly Girl. You know, Patricia, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today.
1: I appreciate you having me.
0: Well, we're at the end of our time today. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne. And remember make every moment count.
2: In a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work. And while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Moments with Mary Ann airs every Thursday, Friday, and Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmaryann.com for more information.